Thank you for joining us for episode 404 of Live Happy Now. It's Valentine's Day, and as the rest of the world focuses on romantic notions, we're going to get real. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm sitting down with marriage and family therapist Michelle Becker to talk about how we can become more compassionate in our relationships. Michelle developed the Compassion for Couples program, is co-founder of the teacher training program at the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, and a senior teacher of Compassion Cultivation Training. She also hosts the Well-Connected podcast and is author of Compassion for Couples, Building the Skills of Loving Connection. Today, she shares with us some of the key ways that practicing compassion can transform our relationships, and then she gives us some tips for getting started. Let's have a listen. Michelle, welcome to Live Happy Now. Thank you. Happy to be here, Paula. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. Um, You too. And yeah, this is a time when we are absolutely inundated with all these images of romantic love and grand gestures. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because it's not always that way. And I wanted to talk to you about the side that gets overlooked. And that's this more mature part of the relationship, this later phase of love. So to kick it off, can you talk about how this stage, this later stage of romance and love is so much different than the love we have when we're falling in love? Yeah, I think it might help actually to talk about what happens when we fall in love and then how we progress to that mature love. So in this falling in love phase, we are actually dosed with chemicals like oxytocin. And what happens is that prevents us, we have this sort of, not all of us, but often this sense of being on cloud nine, like, oh, he's so wonderful. She's so wonderful. They're so wonderful, right? Like this is the thing that has made my life happy and complete. My happiness rests with them, right? And the thing is that this hormone cocktail prevents us from seeing any qualities in our future partners that we don't like. We're just blinded to it for a while, but the cocktail wears off. And when the cocktail wears off, the curtain lifts and suddenly we can see that this person actually has qualities we don't care for and habits we don't care for. And it could be, you know, small little irritating things like they don't put the cap back on the toothpaste or, you know, they don't pick their socks up or whatever it might be, right? It's kind of a an uncomfortable thing to realize, oh no, because we've tied all our happiness to this idea that there's this other person out here that completes us, that is the source, the root of our happiness. And now to find out that they're just a human being and they have qualities we don't like can be really painful. And, you know, Rick Hansen, psychologist Rick Hansen talks about the negativity bias. He says, we're like Velcro for negative emotions and Teflon for positive emotions. So once we start to notice negatives, we can really fixate on those negatives and the positives that we were so happy about just a little while ago, we're not so much noticing anymore, right? We're used to those and these new negatives we see really we fixate on. Uh, Barbara Friedrichsen, a positive emotions expert, she talks about how when we're in a state of positive emotions, it broadens our field of vision. We see lots. But when we're in a state of negative emotion, our whole field of vision narrows down to that one thing. So in this kind of second phase, we can get really fixated on all the problems in our relationship and especially all the problems with our partner. So as a couples counselor, as a therapist, do you see relationships that could be very good and solid 
that they come to you and it's simply that they are focusing on the wrong thing? Yeah, all the time. Most people come into couples therapy because they think there's something wrong with their partner and they would like me (laughs) to fix their partner, right? (laughs) You know, that's really why they come in. And what they learn actually is that focusing on their partner in that way isn't actually helpful. It kind of feeds us negative relational downward spiral. But when we pause and start to learn to take care of ourselves, so this is where self-compassion comes in and can be very helpful. When we learn that we can meet our own needs and we're not so dependent on our partner meeting our needs. In other words, we can be a full human being, fully ourselves, accept ourselves, our good qualities and our growing edges. That kind of takes a lot of the pressure off the relationship. And then when we start to view our partner in that same way, when we start to look at our partner as a whole human being that has both qualities that we admire, that we're fond of, that we love, and also qualities that they struggle with, that where, you know, they're like a complete human being. Nobody's perfect, right? And we start to understand that when they do things that bother us, it it's not because they don't love us, which is usually the sense we make of it. It's because they're in pain in some sort of way, right? And that actually kind of softens our hearts. Then we can show up for our part. Instead of getting into feeling offended and defensive and whatever the other reactivity habits might be, we can start to see, oh, I don't have to take that personally. That isn't actually about me. And gosh, they must be having a hard time right now. It really changes everything. So in this mature love, which was the question you asked me in the mature love phase, it's really characterized by a deep love, but also acceptance, acceptance of ourselves and our partners as we are. It doesn't mean we don't have qualities we still need to work on or we still need to change. It just means that we don't have to get rid of the things we don't like about each other to love each other, to care about each other, to show up. That's terrific. And So oftentimes, and I know this has happened in my own relationship, where I'll feel very aggravated with the other person, and it's really me. It's like I'm having a bad day. You know, that same thing would not have bothered me on a normal day or if I wasn't hormonal or whatever that case may be. And so how often is that the case, that it's really not what the other person is doing, it's just how you're feeling and how you're responding to it? I love that you said that, Paula, because that's exactly what I'm talking about. That when our partner is not skillful, they, you know, snap at us, for example, as you're saying, even if they snap at us and say it's our fault, you know, or you're such a, or you never, or you, whatever, it isn't really about us. It really is an indicator that our partner right now has some pain going on underneath that that's causing them to snap. Like, just like you're saying that they're having a bad day, that they're stressed out, that they learned that they have a health problem or someone they love has a health problem, that something's going on at work, that they didn't get enough sleep last night. You know, as human beings, we're subject to all these different causes and conditions for how we are right now. Really, I'm just excited that you're owning that and naming that. And what I want you to know is this is just how we're wired as human beings. It's not just you, it's all of us. And when we're on the receiving end of that, though, it's difficult to sit back and say, oh, well, they're just having a bad day. It's like, you know, it's easy to fire right back. So how do we change the way that we receive that? 
So, well, let me first say that we don't have to accept bad behavior. It is okay and even important to set limits if somebody's doing something harmful. But when we don't take it personally, when we realize, oh, this isn't actually about me, even with my partner's aiming it at me, when we realize that we can settle a little bit and then we can become curious about what's going on in them. So let me give you an example. Your partner comes home late from work and this is a habit and you're having a particularly bad day. You really were counting on them being home on time and they come in the door and you snap at them, right? So your partner, they can snap back at you, in which case you're off to the races, things are going to get worse, right? (laughs) But what if your partner instead said, hey, Paula, you know what? I gather you're probably pretty stressed right now, but please don't snap at me. What happened in your day today? You know, I really want to be there for you. Can you tell me what's going on? And that just completely disarms you. Yeah. Changes everything, right? But we have to first catch it ourselves. We have to practice catching when that our reactivity arises. It's our threat defense system that gets activated when somebody attacks us. And when our reactivity arises, we have to notice, ah, I'm getting angry. Why am I angry? I wasn't angry a minute ago, right? Oh, it's not actually my anger. It's my partner's. Oh, why are they angry? Ah, because something painful just happened to them or they're in the midst of some pain, right? And the more we practice it, the quicker it happens in the moment for us, the quicker we can be with not catching the anger, but instead noticing that's not mine, that's theirs. And probably there's something painful underneath. And I love that because that's an incredible skill. And it's not just relegated to your romantic relationship. That's great for with your children, your parents, your entire sibling. Your (laughs) coworkers, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That alone is just a a workshop you need to offer us to (laughs) how we adopt that. (laughs) Yeah. It turns out that people's behavior is actually theirs. It's not about us. Right. And that's so hard to learn. So you have a new book coming out, which I'm really excited about, Compassion for Couples. And you go into using compassion for yourself and for your relationship. And Mm -hmm. I really want to get into this, but very curious to find out how you became so interested in studying compassion as it relates to relationships. Well, I started actually with a curiosity about relationships. So they've kind of always been my thing. So when I went to grad school, I chose to be a marriage and family therapist because that was the one that worked with relationships or was specialized in relationships. And then as part of that, I took some continuing education and I learned about mindfulness. I was like, oh, there's a name for that. That was the state I was in when I had been practicing yoga, right? Oh, there's a name for that. It's called mindfulness. And then as part of that, I learned about compassion and I learned that compassion is actually a skill that can be trained. So it's true that we're born with varying degrees of compassion, but all of us, no matter how much or little we're born with, can learn more compassion. So I was on a mindfulness retreat when self-compassion just kind of spontaneously arose for me. So, you know, I was opening to the pain in my life and this sense of someone, which was myself, caring about me arose, right? And like that there was a sense that I would could comfort myself, I could soothe myself, I could protect and stand up for myself and was really very much a big change for me. And I began to, well, shortly after that, I found the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, Chris Germer and Kristen Neff's program, and they invited me to start teaching self-compassion. I thought, this is really the thing that changes everything. 
And then when we co-developed a teacher training along with Steve Hickman for how to teach this program, and on one of those trainings, people were asking me, well, how would you use this with couples? And I went, oh, well, you know, in session one, I would do this. And then session two. So I developed a program, Compassion for Couples, and that's what I do. I teach couples how to relate to themselves and each other with more compassion. Because when we have compassion in our primary relationships, when we have that safety net underneath us, that soft place to land, not only does it change our relationships, but it really changes us. We now can go out into the world with more courage because when we fail, which is part of life, there's a way to be held, to recover, to be okay. It ripples out and it gives us the courage to be more fully ourselves and live our lives more fully. That's really powerful. And we know what compassion is. We know what it means, but how do we practice it? And especially how do we start practicing self-compassion? Because I believe you say that's where it starts. We practice compassion for ourselves first and then for others. In relationships. So the research is that most people are much more compassionate toward others than they are toward themselves. You know, that we're kind of trained in that way, be kind to other people, right? But a lot of us are not trained to be kind to ourselves. So we have this capacity and it's a matter of just learning to include ourselves in our circle of compassion. So we learn to show up by one of the ways that we can harness our power for compassion is to, when we realize that we're suffering in some way, struggling, we're having a hard time, actually pause and notice, oh, I'm having a hard time right now. Often we don't notice. We just find ourselves, you know, three episodes in binge watching Netflix or, you know, whatever our go-to balm is, salve is, right? (laughs) We have to notice that we're suffering. And then we recognize that suffering is part of being human. This is a shared human condition. And then we might ask ourselves what we need. So what do I need right now? And for many of us in the beginning, we don't have the answer to that. So we can kind of trick ourselves into finding the answer by asking ourselves, okay, if my good friend that I really care about had the same problem as me, what would I say to them? Ah, now we know what we need, right? And then we can turn it around and say that to ourselves, you know, I'm here for you. It's okay. It isn't your fault. We'll get through this, whatever it is we might need to hear. So do you advise to have a daily self-compassion practice or how do they start implementing this and making it a daily part of who they are? Well, so in terms of learning self-compassion, I think the Mindful Self-Compassion program is excellent and I recommend that. So because it teaches a lot of practices, we teach some of them also in the Compassion for Couples program and I've got some of them, many of them actually in my book as well. But there are two kinds of practices. There's formal practice, which is where we set aside time just to do that. We're not doing something else at the same time. And there are practices of following our breath. There are practices of saying kind phrases to ourselves, things like that. That's a good baseline to have to practice every day, but not everybody can or will set aside the time to practice like that. So luckily there's also informal practice and informal practice is how we integrate that as we go about our day, how we integrate. So the self-compassion break, it might be an example of that. We can practice that actually both ways. We can pause, do nothing else. We can say, this is a moment of suffering. Acknowledge that we're having a hard time right now, that suffering is part of any life. This is how it feels, for example, when uh, couples are disagreeing. 
it's painful, right? Mm -hmm. Or this is how it feels when we feel unloved, whatever it is, that this is just part of being a human being in a relationship. And then we can offer some kindness to ourselves. You know, I see you, I care about you, right? So we can do that in a formal way, setting aside time, but we can also do that in the middle of a conversation with our partner, right? On the go. So our partner's doing something that we don't like, we're feeling abandoned, you know, whatever it might be. We can just notice to ourselves, oh, wow, this is really hard. This is really painful. Okay. This is part of being in a relationship. And then we can say something kind to ourselves, you know, I'll get through this. We'll get through this. You know, we can always work it out in the end, you know, whatever it might be, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to do anything else. It doesn't have to take a long time. It can be three short statements. What I liked when you said that you put your hand on your heart. Yeah. As you said that. And that's something I've learned. Like Shauna Shapiro was a guest a couple of years ago. She really taught me that. And then we had Janine Thompson recently who talked about that same thing of putting your hand on your heart as you make a statement like that. Um, Tell me why that is important. So I love that you're saying this. So Dacher Keltner and his team, the Greater Good, did some research into what is compassionate, what cultures around the world find compassionate? What's the common theme? And they found three things. And one of them was a kind touch. So we are actually, as human beings, we are wired, our physiology is wired to be comforted and soothed by kind touch. So if you think about it, a baby's crying and you pick them up and cuddle them in a certain kind of way, that's part of what helps them settle. The cool thing is, We don't need somebody else to activate our physiology. We can activate our own physiology. So often there's a spot on the body. You're right. For me, it's my heart. And for many of us, it's our heart. But it's not the heart for everybody. Some people, it's, you know, putting your hands on your cheeks or it's stroking the forearm, holding your own hand, all sorts of different places. But people can experiment with that, putting their hands in different places and seeing what effect it has on their bodies, right? What feels comforting and soothing. So that's not the cool thing. We can activate our own. I like that. Yeah, me too. So now once we've practiced some self-compassion and, and we've gotten more used to implementing it into our lives, how is that going to change our compassion for our partner? Because as you said, a lot of people come in that's like change that person um, because he's the problem. (laughs) Yeah. So how will we then start using compassion toward our partner? So I love that you said it that way, Paula change that person because he's the problem. When we are in our threat defense system, something has come up and we're distressed. We think the other person needs to change so that we can feel better. Mm -hmm. Change that person. He's the problem. Then I'll feel better. That's the hope, right? But wow, does it change everything when we realize I have the capacity to feel better whether or not this person changes. Whether or not this person does something different, I have the capacity to feel better. That's self-compassion. We can tend to ourselves in that kind of a way. We can give ourselves what we need. We don't always have to get it from our partner. That's hugely empowering when we figure that out. And then we can use that to settle our own physiology. So now we can still go back to our partner and say, you know, I need something different. It was really painful when you did this, you know, whatever it might be. But now we're saying it with calmer physiology and with some love in our hearts. And our partners can usually hear us better 
when we're coming from that place than they can when we're coming from the threat defense system and we're attacking. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I wanted to talk to you because in the foreword of your book, Chris Germer writes about the traps that couples fall into and how difficult it can be to get out of them. And I wondered if you could give us an example of one or two of the most common traps that you see and then how we use compassion to get out of those instead of use our old ways. Yeah. So I'm not sure which traps he's referring to, but what I think of when I think of these traps is I think of our physiology, just how we're wired for survival. And uh, Paul Gilbert has done a lot of work on this. I really love his work, but he talks about that we have these different emotion regulation systems. And the primary one, the one that is dominant when we're stressed is the threat defense system. People are familiar with that because it's fight, flight, freeze. You know, that's where that lives, right? So I looked at, okay, so what happens in relationships when we're in fight, flight, freeze? Well, fight turns into either blaming our partners or defensiveness. Flight turns into avoidance, right? We just kind of disappear, back off. I don't want to get into it, which is actually, we're trying to protect the relationship often right. doing that, right? Protect ourselves, protect our partners, protect the relationship, and freeze often turns into a kind of surrender, a kind of placating. Yes, dear. Sure, honey, whatever you want. We don't agree necessarily, but we think that we're going to tell them what we think they want to hear so that they settle, so that they calm down, right? So those are the things that really get us stuck in our relationship. It's really good for our physical survival. It's really bad for our relationships and <laughs> our, our emotional lives, right? Because, you know, fighting doesn't help anything. Abandoning your partner doesn't help anything. And really, we do hate to be placated, right? You right. Know? What we can do instead, and this is where self-compassion is so helpful, is we can notice our own distress. We can show up for ourselves, give ourselves what we need, whether that's taking a break, but in a kind way, checking out, telling our partners, hey, you know what? This isn't going well. I'm a little bit activated here. I'm going to take a break and tend to myself, but I'll be back. You know, we have to always have to reassure, I care about you and coming back, right? Because then our physiology has settled once we've taken care of ourselves. Now we can actually see the other person. Before that, we don't really accurately see the other person. We have our story and we think that's it, you know, toxic certainty. And let me just tell you, <laughs> right? <laughs> when we've settled our bodies, when we've opened our hearts a little bit, our minds are open. Now we can approach with a little more humility, a little more curiosity. I know my experience. I hope you want to hear about that. I'd like to hear about your experience too. Turns out often we weren't right. You Interesting. Know, something else was going on for our partner that we didn't understand. And can you talk about some of the things, some of the changes that you've seen in couples who start using this? Because I know, like I've got friends and, and you and I talked before we started recording and pandemic was tough on relationships. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who I know who are really just kind of hanging in there and wondering if they really want to. And it's a difficult time for a lot of people. So would you share with that kind of the, how it can change relationships? You know, it changes relationships. There's so many things jump to my mind. So it's hard for me to kind of accurately describe all of it, but I'll tell you a couple things that come to mind. One is we treat our partners generally the way we want to be treated. So use my uh, relationship, for example, when I am distressed, when we've, I've had some relationship thing happen, I really don't want to be touched. I want to be heard. 
And once I'm heard, I relax a little bit. Okay, now you can touch me. My partner does not want words, does not (laughs) want to talk about it. He wants to be touched. You know, he wants to be held, to be comforted, to be reassured in that kind of way. And then, you know, maybe we'll be able to talk about it. So when there's some disagreement and I show up and say, let's talk about it, that's not really going to be skillful for him, right? If he's upset. So that's one of the things is actually learning. So learning for me, learning, oh, when he's upset, don't ask him to talk about it. That's not how he's wired. Offer him a pat on the back, a hug, something like that. He'll feel comforted, reassured. Okay, now maybe we can talk about it, right? So that's one of the things is actually starting to see each other. And when we see each other, when we really begin to understand each other, we have a lot more options about how to be skillful with each other in relationships. So that's one of the ways that it changes. Also learning things like these emotion regulation systems. One is the threat defense system. One is the care system where compassion lives. But there's another one, the drive system, which is about getting things done, achieving, wanting, pursuing, achieving, consuming. And very often, especially men, but not limited to men, have been socialized to solve the problem, fix the problem, right? And so their partner shows up and says, I'm really having a hard time. Maybe it's at work, something else is going on with the kids, whatever. I'm really having a hard time. And the and I'll say husband in this case, but please know it's not gendered. The husband says, well, you know, you need to talk to your boss about blah, 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 or whatever it is, right? And the wife just sort of collapses because that's not what she wanted. What she wanted was just a kind, caring presence. What she wanted was for him just to say, God, that really sucks. I'm so sorry that's happening for you. You know, how are you, right? So one of the things in this Compassion for Couples program, in the last program that I taught, especially the men were like blown away. (laughs) They didn't know they're not supposed to fix it. No. And that (laughs) they didn't know there was another option. They really did not know there was an option, another option. And so when they were like, as we practice communication and we practice just that compassionate listening, you know, how to actually just stay present while your partner's talking. I mean, really, they went on and on. Their minds were blown. They're like, that's all I have to do. Like, that's (laughs) it. Like, that's what she wants. You know, there just are a whole bunch of different ways that it shows up. And even people who have really come into the program with really good, solid relationships tell me afterward that they came closer. They were able to, you know, develop more intimacy with their partner and in a way that felt safe. Because that's the thing. Sometimes keep a little distance because we don't feel completely safe. So when we have the confidence that our partners will meet us with compassion, we feel safer. We're a little safer to come close. That's great. And as we started the show, we talked about that romantic love and all how we just see these great things. Once we start seeing our partner through the lens of compassion and we start developing these skills, how does it take us back to that? How does it remind us of some of those reasons that we fell in love and why we're here to begin with. It does because we actually can see them more clearly again. So we see the undesirable qualities, but we're not focused just on those. We see the parts we love about them as well. And because we are showing up in the relationship with more kindness, with more compassion, with more acceptance, they can show us more of who they are. And, you know, honestly, sometimes 
it's really, we're, we're just in awe of like this actual human being with these qualities, right? Because we can see them more clearly. They feel safer coming toward us. If that makes sense. Uh, Yeah, it does. Michelle, thank you for this time today. This is so insightful. We're going to tell the listeners how they can find your book, how they can find you learn more about it, but I truly appreciate your time today. Thank you, Paula. Appreciate that. Lovely to be with you. That was Michelle Becker talking about how to improve your relationships using compassion. If you'd like to learn more about Michelle, download a free chapter of her book, sign up for her upcoming Compassion for Couples workshop, or follow her on social media. Just visit us at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. And with March just a couple of weeks away, we here at Live Happy are starting to think about our annual Happy Acts campaign, and we'd love for you to do the same. Throughout March, we're offering a full calendar of daily suggestions to help you make your world a happier place. I'd like to encourage you to visit the Happy Acts section of our website to learn how you can be involved and how you can host a happiness wall in your home, office, church, or school to celebrate the International Day of Happiness. Just visit us at livehappy.com and click on the Happy Acts tab. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.